An otherwise healthy man walked into a Dallas ER with a fever, and many today act surprised that the ER staff, who are probably simultaneously treating strokes, traumas, and all sorts of worrisome cases, didn't pick out that febrile man as the one case the entire country would obsess about. Texas Presbyterian had plenty of vocal critics in the media and in the public, but I really believe just about any hospital that is the first to see a disease that has never once been diagnosed on U.S. soil wouldn't have necessarily done much better. You are listening to Hospital Medicine with your host, Dr. Gil Parat, and it's true the right questions weren't followed up on, but those criticizing from hindsight I suppose are infallible themselves and therefore justified in doing so. For the rest of us, when we prepare for a disease we haven't seen in our community, We must learn from the mistakes and the successes of others. This is the first time I'm giving a podcast on a disease I have yet to see and treat myself, but over the last weeks, I am one of many people in many hospitals focused on a multidisciplinary plan and response to the potential of us seeing this scary viral disease called Ebola that looks like a little strand of spaghetti under an electron microscope. Later, I'll try and provide some learning points about a case I saw in which we were able to rule out Ebola by history and exam. The hospitals I work for are in Colorado Springs, which is a community with lots of soldiers. And one of the several bases we are proud of here is Fort Carson. Soldiers are deploying from Fort Carson, as they are from other military and Air Force bases, to West Africa, and they will help construct facilities to help those mostly volunteer healthcare workers who are on the ground treating patients. Military officials have explained the soldiers will not be working directly with infected persons, but we all accept there are real risks of traveling to outbreak countries. There are also lots of missionaries here in Colorado Springs, so like many cities all over the U.S. and the world, we have a real possibility of seeing Ebola in our hospitals. Now let's start with the first step we all need to do to help stop Ebola from spreading. What is the one thing everybody in healthcare can do that will have the biggest impact during an Ebola epidemic? That one thing is to ask. And during this current outbreak, the first question we ask is about travel. We ask, is there any recent travel to Western Africa, particularly at the moment countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea? And if they say no, you have one more question to ask, which is, have you had any contact with an individual with confirmed Ebola virus disease? Now, confirmed is the important point there. We have had people show up at our ER saying, I was in Texas last week, and they weren't even in Dallas or anywhere even close to Emory. So that doesn't really count as being exposed to Ebola virus. Now, if the answer is yes to any of those questions, that's really when you start getting into the symptom questions. Do you have fever, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, chills, weakness, joint or muscle aches, headaches, loss of appetite, a rash or bleeding, or other possible symptoms? But without asking the right questions, there's no way to move on to the next steps of isolation and treatment. Now, a few weeks ago, when we heard of the first Ebola case that was diagnosed on U.S. soil, We recall that particular patient from Africa was admitted to Texas Presbyterian, and the most unfortunate things occurred. There was nosocomial spread, 
which was something we thought would be unlikely in a U.S. facility, but we now know that the right precautions were not taken. The heroic nurses and doctors at Texas Presbyterian are at risk for human error, just as all of us are at every hospital. We have seen great docs and nurses stick themselves with needles while trying to be cautious, though that wasn't the issue at Texas Presbyterian. And to be fair, it wasn't just human error at Texas Presbyterian. There was procedural error because it was the first case diagnosed in a U.S. hospital, and most centers were not prepared with a well-written plan to follow. But the doctors, and particularly the nurses spending long shifts in a very intense environment, are to be commended for their compassion and courage. A lot of people are prone to throwing up their hands and saying, why doesn't somebody do something about this stuff? Well, they were the people that did something, and they did it with honor. At this point, it's worth mentioning the few centers who are currently very well prepared for an Ebola patient in the United States. We refer to these centers as high-level containment care units. These facilities that have optimized the personal protective measures needed to care for highly infective and deadly viruses are, in the United States, Nebraska Medical Center, Emory University Hospital, St. Patrick's Hospital in Missoula, Montana, and the NIH, or the National Institutes of Health, in Bethesda, Maryland. I am sure more entities will have a wake-up call and develop high-level containment care units there are a few things that make those facilities experts, not the least of which is advanced preparation. They are well-versed in donning and doffing of personal protective equipment, and they just don't do it once or twice. They repeat the training over and over, even when no epidemic is currently present. Now, as great as it is to have these facilities present in the United States, the idea of relying on such specialized facilities is not a great strategy. Even if your hospital doesn't have the resources to develop the teams and facilities for a high-level containment care unit, we all must be ready in other ways. I like the way the authors of an opinion article put it in the Annals of Internal Medicine from an article titled, Caring for Patients with Ebola, a challenge in any care facility, and they published that on October 16th, 2014. And here's a quote from that article. Owing to the very limited number of existing high-level containment care beds, and given the fact that patients with highly contagious diseases can present unannounced, conventional facilities may be required to triage these patients and even provide definitive care. Despite the enormous challenges they would inevitably face, immediate and thorough preparation is thus imperative. And that's the end of the quote. So several hospitals in the nation, including some in Colorado, have offered themselves up as willing to take patients with Ebola on transfer. And I commend those facilities that do not have high-level containment care units that want to accept Ebola patients on transfer. But at the same time, I have had to explain to some of my own medical staff that we simply can't rely on those hospitals in all situations. And here's the problem I think many miss with these centers. One, having hospitals offering themselves as treatment centers doesn't prevent an Ebola patient coming to any hospital, so everyone still has to prepare for that scenario. Second, there may not be enough bed space if a bunch of people are already being cared for at some of these places. Third, to assume capable transport is immediately available to move an Ebola patient safely 
would be a wrong assumption, again, necessitating the need to care for the patient for at least a while in your facility. Fourth, that Ebola test is not coming back right away in the ER, so it may take one to three days for that test to come back. For example, nobody currently in Colorado runs it, so we would have to send it out of state. Now, fifth reason, even if it's not Ebola, we need to be prepared for the next emerging outbreak, whether that's Marburg or influenza with a high kill rate. The plan of just shipping them to the next guy is not a great plan. And then lastly, people forget a patient has a right to refuse transfer. So preparation is still key. I want to take a few moments to talk about international response. If you combined all the deaths from previous known African Ebola outbreaks, this current outbreak has killed more people in Africa than all of the previous outbreaks combined. A lot of social factors contribute to that. Many may assume Ebola outbreaks tend to happen in the same place each time. Actually, this is the first time that this part of Western Africa has experienced an Ebola outbreak. Therefore, there wasn't a collective memory of how to stop the virus. And it also makes the point that during a future outbreak, it may not be Western African countries that we should be asking the travel history about. It could be other countries. In Western African countries, many families wash the bodies of their loved ones before burial. That burial practice is very dangerous because of the presence of bodily fluids that are highly infectious. The sicker someone gets with Ebola, the higher the viral load. The viral load is tremendous when someone dies, and that makes it the worst time to start touching the body. The National Geographic published an article pretty early in this current outbreak back on July 2nd, 2014, and it was titled, Ebola's Deadly Spread in Africa Driven by Public Health Failures and Cultural Beliefs. So I want to quote part of that article where they say, the first step in containment is to get those affected to health centers where they can be isolated and treated. But as community members are taken to isolation wards, most never to be seen again, rumors often circulate that the wards are not for treatment, but for something more sinister. So Ebola patients often hide from authorities trying to gather names of close contacts. Those who are put in isolation may escape and be hidden by families. Sierra Leone has now made it a crime to hide victims, but punitive measures rarely make the job easier for public health responders. And that's the end of the quote. So now, it's well understood that the countries currently most severely affected, which are Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, have inadequate health systems. The people there didn't have a ton of faith in their health system before Ebola. So imagine sending in guys dressed in spacesuits, coming into your town, removing your family members, most of whom you'll never see again, and spraying your house with a strange-smelling disinfectant. I'm not sure anybody would trust that situation totally. But getting to the heart of the issue, why try and help another country with its problems? Obviously, we should care about people besides ourselves. Sometimes we need to rise above ourselves and have compassion, which not only helps others, Having compassion and acting on it also helps our own souls. But another reason for an international response is to try and contain the Ebola epidemic at its source, because that can be one of the best ways to protect our continent. In this modern world, the transnational threat 
with modern transportation is very real when it comes to viruses. I think it is worth quoting the opinion of Dr. Joanne Liu, who is the international president of Doctors Without Borders, in a speech she delivered to United Nations on September 2, 2014. And she told him this, Coercive measures, such as laws criminalizing the failure to report suspected cases and forced quarantines, are driving people underground. This is leading to the concealment of cases and is pushing the sick away from health systems. These measures have only served to breed fear and unrest rather than contain the virus. UN members cannot focus solely on measures to protect their own borders. Only by battling the epidemic at its roots can we stem it. I realize there are lots of opinions out there, particularly fueled by talk radio, fear, and the election season about closing the borders, but we must at a minimum acknowledge the voices of those risking their lives to go into the hot zones because they have frontline comprehension of some issues the rest of us haven't seen. I think most of us not acting on pure emotion can understand the arguments for both closing the borders and allowing travel. There are merits in both arguments, and I am not smart enough to predict who is correct, but I do want to acknowledge that what seems like an easy answer of just isolation and closing the borders really may not work. Now, let's switch gears for a moment and talk about strains of Ebola. There are five different strains of the Ebola virus. The strains are named after the places of identification. Four of these five have caused disease in humans, while the Reston strain of Ebola virus can infect humans, but no illnesses or deaths so far have been reported by Reston Ebola, even though it can cause illness in other types of primates. The Zaire strain is responsible for this current 2014 epidemic. Now, let's review some facts we know about the Ebola virus outbreaks we have seen in the past and this current outbreak. The first fact is that as of this recording towards the end of October 2014, more Americans have been married to Kim Kardashian than have died on U.S. soil from Ebola. We must respect the fatal dangers of Ebola, but some of the panic and anxiety of U.S. citizens has been a bit overblown. Outbreaks start when the virus is transmitted to people from wild animals and then spreads in the human population through human-to-human -human transmission. The World Health Organization says the average Ebola case fatality rate has been around 50%. Case fatality rates have varied from 25% to 90% in past outbreaks. Now, as of today, Emory University has treated four Ebola patients during this outbreak, and none of those patients have died. Emory physician Dr. Jay Varkey told NPR in an interview, the true cure for Ebola virus is keeping the patient alive long enough to develop the antibodies that will cause them to get over the infection. So historically, these outbreaks happen, and then the outbreak gets contained, and the world doesn't see Ebola again until the next outbreak happens. So far, Ebola has not been endemic. Endemic means when the disease is found in a specific population or particular region of the world, the term endemic is usually used to refer to a disease that occurs continuously or with a stable baseline incidence 
within a locale or a group of people. Rather, Ebola has not met that criteria and happens in outbreaks. This current big outbreak is the 25th known outbreak. Ebola gets reintroduced into the human population through close contact with the blood, secretions, organs, or other bodily fluids of infected animals such as chimpanzees, gorillas, fruit bats, monkeys, antelope, and other animals found ill or dead in the rainforest. And those animals are eaten after being found dead or hunted as bushmeat. And after that reintroduction, we once again see human-to-human transmission. Our best case scenario without an effective vaccine is that outbreaks keep happening and that we are able to contain them quickly. You know, there was the editorial from the October 16th, 2014 New England Journal of Medicine that offered a more bleak alternative when they said, and I'll quote them, without a more effective all-out effort, Ebola could become endemic in West Africa, which could, in turn, become a reservoir for the virus spread to other parts of Africa and beyond. So hopefully that won't happen because nobody wants to see Ebola be a continuous daily threat for the world. And I'm looking at the clock and I got to get to work. So we'll call this part one Ebola virus and come back because there's a lot more to talk about this virus as far as multiple issues of recognizing its symptoms, treatment, and all kinds of other issues. So part one of Ebola virus is over. I'll see you next time on the Hospital Medicine Podcast.